spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. On Wednesday night in Milwaukee, eight Republicans running to be the next president are going to stand on a debate stage. The GOP frontrunner, Donald Trump, won't be there, but he'll still be living rent-free in the candidates' heads. We've actually seen very specific evidence in the polls showing that a vast majority of Republican voters don't want to see other candidates criticizing Trump. Maeve Reston is a national political reporter here at The Post, and she's been reporting on this unusual dynamic. It's been this very fine line that those lower-tier candidates have to walk because, of course, some voters see it as an act of disloyalty that these folks are running at all. The former president is still way ahead of his colleagues in the polls, so much so that Trump won't even be attending Wednesday's debate. But for the candidates, maybe that's an opportunity. By now, you've probably heard of some of the bigger names in the race, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But for others, this will be the first time many Americans get to meet them. And in that sense, the debate might be a real chance to break through. The debate offers a moment when they will have millions of eyeballs on them. Thinking back to the 2016 debate, uh, the first 2016 debate in August when Trump was on the stage, it brought in something like 24 million viewers. There is no other venue where candidates could get that kind of attention and focus on their message. From the newsroom of The Washington Post... This is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Michelle Borstein. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. Today, a reset of the GOP primary field with the first Republican debate in Milwaukee. We're going to unpack how these candidates cleared the hurdles for this debate. And we'll talk about their strategy to convince voters that Trump might not be inevitable. So who's going to be on the debate stage? There are eight GOP contenders who have qualified for the debate stage. And that's South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. What do the voters want in their president? They want someone who can persuade on the issues that matter the most to them. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Americans are tired. They want to see a government work for them again. They want to see results happen. They don't. Former Vice President Mike Pence. I believe that different times call for different leadership. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. I can tell you I'm running because I believe what Reagan believed. 
North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who is running a, a long shot campaign. We've never had anybody with a software background ever anywhere near the White House. And right now, technology is changing every job, every company, every industry. It needs to change our government. It needs to change. Our- and also tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. I think I'm the only person in this race, including Trump who has the power and ability to inspire a new young generation of Americans that I think our voter base cares deeply about. And there was one, the latest addition is a former Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson, who just qualified by reaching the number of donors that were needed. And I'm convinced that people want leaders that appeal to the best of America and not simply appeal to our worst instincts. So this is the first debate. These are early days. Trump won't even be at the debate. He's dealing with, among other things, an indictment in Fulton County, Georgia. But for you, Maeve, as somebody who follows this so closely, what are you going to be focusing on in the debate and why? So I'm really interested to see whether DeSantis can uh, can pull off a real comeback moment here. Uh, There have been so many millions of dollars that have been raised, not just by his own campaign, but by the super PAC that is supporting him. And yet he's still he's now fallen in the polls into the teens. Um, So I think this is a real moment for him to prove, you know, whether he can uh, can pull this off and make it into a two man race, as his campaign says it is between Trump and DeSantis. Um, but I also think that this is a moment when we might see some surprises um, in terms of other candidates. There's always somebody who's surprising on the debate stage, um, lower tier candidates who have a breakout moment and then can kind of ride that wave for a while. It's going to be interesting to see whether anyone gets a real debate bump because uh, Trump has to turn himself in by Friday in Fulton County. And so I think we can expect the media spotlight to almost immediately turn uh, back to him after the debate. And so in that way, he might once again kind of suck all the oxygen um, out of the race and draw attention away from his rivals. And then you've got just like the wild cards, like Doug Burgum, who I spent some time with him in Fargo right before he jumped into the race. He's a really interesting uh, tech entrepreneur. He's got a a good story to tell about growing up in the Great Plains and working in his family's grain elevator. And um, sometimes people like that can surprise you and and catch fire. Um, And so that's why we all love debates, because you can't predict what's going to happen. There's another thing that former President Trump is scheduled to do that day. Is that right? Yeah. So he's been toying with lots of different counter-programming ideas, uh, but seems to have settled on this pre-recorded interview that he did with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson that is supposed to be posted online on Wednesday night around the same time as the debate. So all of the details are not quite clear on that yet, but that seems to be how he's going to try to uh, lure some viewers his way so they're not paying attention to his rivals. Maeve, can you tell me in detail what exactly the requirements were to get on the first debate stage and what was the reason for having them? The Republican National Committee came up with 
criteria for these debates. Obviously, they wanted to keep the stage somewhat manageable and, you know, not completely unwieldy with a million contenders up there. So they told the candidates that they would have to prove that they had 40,000 individual donors uh, to their campaigns and that also they would have to meet certain polling criteria. There were certain national polls or local polls that they had to register at 1%. And that was really a heavier lift than it might sound for a lot of the lower tier contenders. In addition to the 40,000 donors, they had to show that they had at least 200 donors in 20 different states. And so for folks like Asa Hutchinson, who has not had to build up a huge small donor base, for example, as the governor of a smaller state, it was a real lift to try to drive, you know, $1 donors uh, to his campaign. I've also heard that the RNC is requiring something like a unity pledge, which sounds interesting. The pledge is the last item on the candidate checklist. Once their donors have been verified, they had to all sign a pledge saying that they would support the eventual nominee of the party's primary and also that they would not participate in any debate that the RNC had not sanctioned. And that was important because... There's a lot of concern that with Donald Trump in particular, that if he were to not win the nomination, that he might try to mount some kind of a third party run. That doesn't look like, you know, a strong possibility at the moment, considering that he has an enormous lead over his rivals in the polls. But that is kind of the thinking behind why there was uh, this loyalty pledge this time. It created some issues for a couple of the candidates, like Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. It's only the era of Donald Trump um, that you need somebody to sign something on a pledge. So I think it's a bad idea. And Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas. But obviously we shouldn't be supporting someone who uh, could be convicted of a felony, serious felony, and... It puts us in a terrible position leading up to the convention. They have been very critical of Trump and uh, don't necessarily want to support him in the general election. And in fact, you know, the whole reason that they are running is because they are arguing that he does not deserve another term in the White House. So they ultimately did sign the pledge in order to make it onto uh, the stage, but also made it clear that they were not taking that pledge particularly seriously when it comes to their own vote. Did Donald Trump say why he wouldn't be attending? Is it because of the pledge or did he give any any more detail about why he's not coming? He doesn't think much of the pledge to begin with, but he also um, has been posting on Truth Social basically asking why he should take part in these debates at all because he has such a huge lead in the national polls. And at the same time, his advisors have always said that, you know, we should be ready for him to change his mind up until the last minute. And one advisor told our Josh Dossie that, you know, he was not thrilled about the idea of being 
the central person being attacked on stage on Wednesday night and not being able to be there to defend himself. But ultimately, he made the decision that, you know, counter-programming was going to be a better choice for him. Some of the things that some of the candidates who are lesser known are have done to qualify and meet that donor threshold are kind of unorthodox. Can you tell us about those? So as we discussed, some of these guys like Doug Burgum, who's the North Dakota governor, Asa Hutchinson, and some others are really not as well known. And they don't have, they didn't have a huge donor base to begin with, which was different than a Chris Christie who ran in 2016 or Tim Scott, who has a huge donor list from his Senate campaigns. Um, same deal with, with Nikki Haley. She's, you know, built up a huge list over the years. So some of them came up with these sort of creative fundraising solutions that have kind of push the limits of legality. Doug Burgum, for example, went out and offered folks a $20 gift card for the first 50,000 donors who gave at least $1. Turns out if you tell people, hey, we'll give you a gift card if you come to the DougBurgum.com, guess what? They come and they, hey, I want to buy a t-shirt. I want to buy a mug. Maybe I want to give, you know, $25. Maybe I don't. And then you have Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who went more with like kind of a sweepstakes approach. He posted on Twitter that he was giving folks a chance to win front row tickets to see um, Lionel Messi's debut at the Inter Miami. Uh, and yes, we are going to give away two tickets uh, to the game. And so we asked people to Venmo a dollar at Suarez 2024 to get me on the debate stage so that I can continue to talk about the greatness of my city. And it wasn't just the candidates who were doing some of these kind of quirky fundraising um, efforts. The super PACs around a lot of the candidates are taking on a bigger and bigger role in helping drive donors to campaigns. There obviously can't be any coordination between the campaign itself and the super PAC, but the super PACs can drive donors to the campaigns by advertising on their behalf. And so the super PAC that's supporting Suarez, which is called SOS America, announced this sweepstakes where college students could win college tuition if they donated $1. I'm expecting to see um, the legality of some of these ideas be challenged, or at least for folks to be asking the FAC for opinions on what's legal and what's not. But we're definitely in a whole new realm here. What are you seeing in terms of the fundraising that, that candidates are doing? And what does that tell us about the primary? Well, it's been really interesting. Trump, by far and away, has more small-dollar donors than any of these candidates in terms of the number of small-dollar donors who have contributed to his campaign, whereas uh, someone like Ron DeSantis, who has been leading the field behind Trump in fundraising, is relying much more on big-money donors many of whom have now maxed out to his campaign. So for Trump, it's a real illustration of that grassroots support that he has in the party, whereas someone like DeSantis is relying much more on sort of the big money types to fund his campaign. The other thing that's important to note here is that Trump has been burning through a lot of the money that he's raised 
because so much of it is now being directed to his legal bills in the course of these four indictments. He can't pay for those legal bills out of his actual campaign account, but he can pay for them out of his leadership pack. So um, even though he's raising a lot of money, he's also having to spend a lot of money. DeSantis also is burning through cash very quickly. And that's in part because of his taste for private jet flights, as we've covered in the Washington Post, and also just a huge staff payroll that he had. So he has more recently been shedding staff and trying to create a leaner operation so that he can make it for the long haul. The other notable fundraisers in the field, I would say, are Tim Scott, who was able to transfer a lot of money over from his Senate campaign. And Nikki Haley is running a much leaner operation. But all of these folks in the lower tier are still really competing for donors and also trying to get these frozen donors who are on the sidelines and who are skeptical that any of them have what it takes to take on Trump to get those folks off the sidelines and donating to their campaigns. And is your sense that these kind of like lower, because so many people are clustered at the bottom, that that tells us that there's a lack of appetite for them? Or is there also this big question, like you just said, that people are just kind of waiting to see who's going to leap ahead and then follow them? Like, is it just too early to say much? No, I mean, I think that, you know, money is a good indicator of appetite for these candidates, particularly money from smaller dollar donors. And someone like Mike Pence, you would expect a former vice president to have like a huge pool of donors. But his early reports were really uh, threadbare from that perspective. And that's because of his struggles to connect with the GOP audience who sees him as someone who has been disloyal to Donald Trump. You know, for for Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, money is always kind of a good indicator of how many folks there are out there who really don't want to see Trump. You know, we saw some anecdotal evidence, certainly on Twitter and in other places of like Democrats and independents giving to Christie simply because they want to see him on the debate stage. After the break, Maeve and I will dig into debate strategy how candidates will try and stand out from each other, and, of course, from Donald Trump. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. So is there anything that that you're watching so far that helps us see which candidates have been able to break through with voters? You know, the Wednesday night debate is going to be a big moment. It's a real reset point for these candidates um, because the race has essentially been stagnant uh, when you think about how big Trump's lead has been all throughout this year. And he's gotten these spikes in support after some of the indictments just 
GOP primary voters feel that he's being uh, treated unfairly. And of course, that's the whole case that he has made. But it's going to be really interesting to watch what these candidates do when he's not up there on stage with them. And in my conversations with advisors over the last couple of days, you know, they were all um, preparing these candidates for two scenarios, essentially. Um, You know, one one being a potential last-minute surprise appearance from Trump, and the other being how to capitalize on Trump's absence on the stage to really create those breakout moments that are so important for fundraising um, and drawing in new supporters. So all of the candidates are looking to create those moments. Um, I think we're probably going to see a good amount of attacks on uh, Ramaswamy because he has been rising in some of the polls. Ron DeSantis is also preparing to be sort of the top target on the stage in Trump's absence. And he's also been working with one of the most sought-after debate coaches in the GOP orbit, and that's Brett O'Donnell, who has worked with George Bush, John McCain, and is really good at helping candidates figure out how to connect with audiences in those settings and to really sharpen the points that they need to get across. Do you think that has a lot to do primarily with how he connects with voters or their particular policies and that you expect to hear him grilled on or him him raise? DeSantis's whole strategy has been to try to outflank Trump on the right. And that has led a lot of people to end up kind of scratching their heads. For example, he, you know, signed the ban on abortion at six weeks in his state. And, and, and so Florida's legislature, they did all the exceptions, rape incest, life of the mother. But then they said, you know, if there's a, a detectable heartbeat, you know, is that a life worth protecting? We believe it is. We believe that's important to have a culture of life. He has driven all of these like very conservative policies on what he likes to frame as parental rights, you know, rolling back protections for trans kids, for example. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have elevated the importance of family and promoted a culture of life. We have respected our taxpayers and we have rejected woke ideology. And I think a lot of people are puzzled by that strategy in the sense that he has not given himself much room to pivot in the general election. But I think it's also clear that his message is just not, he hasn't found a message that's really connecting with the majority of GOP voters. He went out there and talked a lot about, you know, what he likes to frame as sort of like the Florida miracle and, um, you know, how they did during the pandemic and um, how things were going with crime, et cetera. But I think over and over again, that speech has just kind of gotten old for people where they want to hear what you're going to do for the country, not in Florida. Um, And so I think it's just been an an array of issues for him as has been well documented. He is also not very natural in these settings on the rope line with people. He moves along the rope line very quickly. He's not particularly good at small talk. And a lot of those exchanges, you know, have been awkward. You know, if you get into this business, you have to really like interacting with people. And sometimes it seems that he doesn't want to take a ton of time to do that. You've also got this elephant in the room kind of thing with Trump not being there. How do you think his absence will influence what we see on Wednesday? 
Well, I think it'll be interesting to see the extent to which candidates try to kind of play off each other or go after him. Certainly, we're going to see Christie and Hutchinson uh, make the case that Trump is not qualified for another term in the White House. But I think that a lot of them are really going to use this first debate as a chance to kind of reintroduce themselves and their messages. And of course, there's a huge portion of the GOP field that has been really loath to criticize Trump at all and have kind of tiptoed around his legal problems, avoided questions about how that might affect him as a nominee. Tim Scott is a really good example of someone who's tried to not attack Trump. I hold the folks who broke into the Capitol with ill will in their hearts, destroying property, responsible for their actions. I don't hold the former president who didn't show up at the Capitol and threaten my life as responsible. So from my perspective... But, you know, there are a lot of voters out there in the GOP who are looking for an alternative, and they'll be tuning in to see which of these candidates you know, has what it takes to take on Trump. So there's a fine line that a lot of the candidates are walking there. Maeve, you mentioned abortion. It sounds like we expect that to be one of the topics Wednesday night where the candidates are trying to emphasize their differences from one another. What are some of the other topics that you expect them to debate? Yes. I mean, I think uh, some of the big topics obviously will be the economy, inflation, uh, but definitely abortion. Ukraine, there's a, a really kind of major split within the party on how much aid we should be giving to Ukraine. But abortion certainly will be a topic. You'll see someone like Mike Pence, for example, um, trying to outflank DeSantis by arguing that DeSantis has actually not been conservative enough on this issue and that he is the contender who evangelicals should gravitate toward because of his long history of fighting these battles to restrict abortion. You know, then you have other candidates who are much less comfortable talking about the limits that they would set on abortion. So I think we should expect to see the moderators sort of drill down with the candidates on those issues. So it's not just that the candidates are dealing with how they look against Trump. It's that for the party itself, it's not clear today what's the consensus of conservative voters. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of differences on an array of issues, whether it's foreign policy or social issues. But that just kind of reflects how fractured the Republican Party is right now. And, you know, some of those Dividing lines have existed for decades now, but I think that the party does feel more divided than it has in a long time because of the Trump effect in part. So every presidential debate is a moment of reckoning for each party. But I think that they are still at this moment, as you said, trying to parse through the identity of what it means to be a Republican today. Maeve. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Maeve Rustin is a national political reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. It's a great way to support the work we do. And you get access to the kind of insightful political reporting you just heard on our show. Go to 
WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Michelle Borstein. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot code SUPER24.